Good morning. Nice to see everybody here today. We are still in 1 Samuel. Now, bless your hearts, I try in the Old Testament to do two chapters a week. There's a lot of Old Testament, almost two to one, right, ratio. So I try and do two chapters a week in the Old Testament. For every one I would do in the New Testament. I think it's just, uh, it's better that way. That way it doesn't take a year to get through something like 1 Samuel. Um, but where are we at with 1 Samuel? And I think a lot of you, most of you that I see here, have been here uh, for the past few weeks. 1 Samuel is essentially the story of the beginning of the monarchy of Israel. And as we've talked about countless times over the past few weeks, Israel, up until about 1000 BC, is a divided collection of tribes, 12 tribes descended from the 12, tri- uh, 12 sons of Jacob, or Israel. And this is a loose confederation that is decided through a variety of different reasons, uh, religious corruption, uh, military instability, economic depression, and so on and so forth, that they want a monarchy, they want a king, and they've been crying out to God for a king for many years. This is the end of the period of what we call the judges, and so judges or leaders have been appointed by God throughout various times over a 400-year period in which uh, a a leader will be uh, raised up to help to drive out the enemies of Israel from Israel and help to kind of reestablish, in some cases, uh, religious plurality, focus on Yahweh, the monotheism of the Israelites. Well, we're at that end of that period, and the last judge, of course, is Samuel. That is the name uh, by which we get this book. And we have seen the anointing of the first king of Israel, who is? Saul. 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 And today we're going to talk about Saul, and we actually have quite a bit of scripture to read. <coughs> we, have, we have an easy one, which is chapter 13, and we have, a, we have a long one, which is chapter 14. So I think what we're going to do is just get right into the word uh, today. I'll ask for a volunteer to read 1 Samuel 13, and we're going to do 1 through 15, and then, uh, I'm sorry, we're going to do 1 through 22, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the Hebrew of this chapter, because it's a little confusing. Not that I'm going to explain the Hebrew to you, I'm going to tell you what smart people think about the Hebrew. And we're going to talk about Saul's leadership style, because this is important. Uh, as we get through Saul's reign, and into the reign of the next king, who will be David. David. All right. Who would like to read 1 Samuel 13, 1 through 22? I mean, I can do that. Good call there, girl. (laughs) I did sit by the microphone. (laughs) Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. 
Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship <coughs> offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt <clears throat> compelled to offer the burnt offering. <clears throat> you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure, and the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah in Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, and axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goats. Goats. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. How far am I reading? Okay. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. You get a gold star for just rolling those Hebrew names off like they were nothing, girl. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> they were probably completely wrong. Hey, it sounded good to me. Uh, that was that was wonderful. Thank you for doing that. This has so much interesting stuff in it. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and ask you all what you think about chapter 13. What has struck out to you here? Or maybe nothing has, has jumped out at you, but what do you think? And there's no right or wrong answers either. I'm just curious what you think. So. My version is a little bit different than hers. Okay. First one says Saul lived for one year and then became king. Thank you. Reign. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Reigned for two years over Israel. So this what? is you. That's you have you have probably looked at my first thing here. Maybe not. So so I want to kind of take a step back for just a moment and talk about the original languages of the Bible. And I know I drive that home a lot. And you're like, Ugh, he keeps going on and on about the original languages of the Bible. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic are the three original languages that were used to compose the manuscripts that you have today in your English versions of the Old and New Testaments in your Bible. The problem with... The <laughs> so, I'll take another step back. I'm currently helping my daughter in learning science because she is finally at the age where she has, she, she's doing stuff I know about, which is biology and chemistry. And we're learning about transcription and translation in biology. And if you remember back, and if you're not a biologist, you have to remember all the way back to 10th grade, 
What am I talking about? This is the process by which living cells take the information encoded in the DNA that is within every living cell and turn it into protein. And protein does stuff in your cells to keep you alive. There's two processes here. Transcription. I, I'm really not going to give you a biology lesson. This is, this is really actually about, uh, about the scripture. I promise. We have transcription. And we have translation. Now, for those of you who are biology buffs, transcription is the process to take the DNA and, and not convert it, but to, to make a copy of that in a sequence of RNA. And translation is a process to take the code of the RNA and essentially uh, turn that into the proteins of your body. Transcription is the copying process. This is the process by which the original code is taken and, and essentially copied, except for a minor chemical base difference in RNA, copied from DNA to RNA. This is the same thing that happens when the original language, like Hebrew, is written then copied into Hebrew. Here is why, where I'm going with all of this. The original Hebrew had no vowels. The original Hebrew had no punctuation. The original Hebrew had no paragraphs. The original Hebrew had no spaces between words. Now, most people who lived in 1000 BC could not read or write. Reading and writing was the blessing of a very small number of people. Maybe less than one half of 1% of all the people in Israel could read and write. When such a few or small number of people know how to do something, they all tend to do it exactly the same way and know exactly how each other is doing it. There's not a lot of variation. There's not a lot of guesswork. The original author of 1 Samuel wrote in Hebrew the words that you have now in 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. In the original Hebrew, it is thought what the author is trying to say was, Saul had reigned for some years. After he had reigned for two years, the following things happened, dot, dot, dot. He had this battle with his men at Michmash. Now, the problem is, the original author knew exactly what he meant. The scribes who copied the original Hebrew knew exactly what he meant. The problem is, over time, that didn't stay. Remember, this is written, and maybe you don't know this, 1 Samuel is written in Paleo-Hebrew. Paleo-Hebrew, what are you talking about? Paleo-Hebrew is the Hebrew language written in the script of original letters that no longer exist today. It was written in these characters that if you, and most of us have seen Hebrew writing, what you're seeing for Hebrew writing is the Aramaic form of Hebrew, that is the modern form of Hebrew, that only came about after the exile in Babylon. During this original period, this is written with letters that are not like today. This is lost. I mean, it's not lost like we don't know it, but they just don't use it anymore. This Paleo-Hebrew language was written, it was copied over time, but eventually it got turned into the modern Hebrew that we have today. But I still say it's copied, essentially, because the language is still the same. It's like um, the difference between French and English. We use the same letters, but they're completely different languages. You're still with me, right? This is the opposite. This is exactly the same language written with different letters. Maybe that blows your mind, okay? <laughs> 
Kind so like we have trans- kind of like Pig Latin. S E A. By the way, I'm terrible at Pig Latin, and if I try and do it, I'll probably curse. Okay. Uh, so we have the transcription here. Now, folks, what I'm trying to get at here is the original authors knew what they were trying to say, but what has happened since? Well, that original Paleo Hebrew was then copied into what what we call Aramaic Hebrew or modern Hebrew, but that wasn't the end of it. Then. Over the next 3,000 years, this is, this, is, this is not only copied, but it's translated. Now, this is a whole different process. What is the, uh, what is the example here? Hebrew is, 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 is translated into what? Greek. It could be Greek. And in some cases where your reference says the Septuagint says a certain thing, that was the Greek version. That is true. But then what? What are you reading? English. English. Now... Don't get me wrong. The core thrust of what the Bible is trying to say has been preserved. And I will, I will stake my life on that. That the core meaning and concepts that are conveyed in the Holy Word of God for the last three or 4,000 years is accurate. I will bet my life on it. I am that confident in that. However, when you get down to the quantum level of sentences and words and slight subtle variations, you start to see a little bit of difference. And you can see how that would happen through thousands of years of copying and translating the Bible. Now, the original meaning here obviously means what? Saul had reigned for a certain period of time. He reigned, he continued to reign for, for some years. And after he had reigned as king, the following things happened. That we're all agreed on. <laughs> That's the core conceptual meaning of what 1 Samuel 13 is trying to get at. Now, when you try and parse it, well, was it 3 or 30? Look, folks, God is just like you would imagine, a gracious and patient God. He knows that humans are humans. And scribes writing by candlelight in the middle of the night who may not really understand certain things because they're they, you know not every scribe was an expert in the bible may see a little hebrew dalit or or aleph and and mistranslate it so three becomes 30. it happens one thousand becomes ten thousand remember too that counting in hebrew they had no numbers the numbers we use today are arabic we use the arabic numbers for our counting system in english they didn't have arabic numbers they didn't have any numbers what, what, when we write numbers, how would you write the number one? In English, one is written like that. In Hebrew and in Greek, you would write alpha with a dot. You would write the letter. The letter was written as the number. This is exactly the same in Hebrew. And so, over time, then there were certain formulas and ways to, to account for large numbers, don't get me wrong, but you have to understand that over time you can see how numbers can change, but the, the fact that there was something there is still the point. There was some number of people, we're not exactly sure how many, after some years, we're not exactly sure how many, but that's not the point, folks, and that doesn't matter. And you can really go down in a rabbit hole and start to you know, go off on a tangent that, that does not matter here. I think the point that the author is trying to make is that Saul was king. <clears throat> he had been king for at least some time before this happened. I have a footnote in mine. Yes, sir. And it says Hebrew is difficult. That's all it says. Yes! <laughs> Thank you. And it just moves right on. <laughs>
Hebrew is difficult. Folks, I don't even want to study it. We downloaded one like class on biblical Hebrew, and I think we got through like one lesson, and it looks so complicated I and horrific. I was like, this is aw- this is terrible. I would rather read the Greek New Testament day and night before I have to learn Hebrew. Now, Hebrew is great, right? Obviously, um, Hebrew is related to the root languages that all Indo, they call Indo, Indo-European languages are, are based on. It is a Semitic language. Basically, all Western languages have a root that's something like Hebrew. Greek has its roots in Hebrew, but it's so hard to learn. Okay, thank you for telling me that. I don't feel so bad now. Let's, what else did you guys take away? And that only took 20 minutes for that one, so let's see. What else did you guys take away from this? Well, Saul doesn't really trust yet. He's seen great things happen, but he doesn't trust. Let's talk about that. So, he lacks trust. What else? He's in, impatient. Which he's impatient. Yeah. Well, he's trusting in the wrong. He's definitely caught up in the actually what's happening on <coughs> earth rather yeah. than he's definitely not caught up in anything spiritual. <laughs> up in worldly maybe maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. He didn't only not trust though, he just was he just didn't do what he was told. Can I say disobedient for you? I think. Okay. Sure. He's trying to exert his control over something that to control wrong things. And this is the problem with pragmatism. is <clears throat> because you see it, you believe it in yeah. this case, but it can't possibly be this case. And I just <clears throat> keep moving on and solving things one step at a time. You know, normally I would have this principle, but in this case it's different. You know, I don't have to trust God here because the people are leaving, so I should sacrifice here. I see. So the the, the pragmatism, your the lifestyle of pragmatism, that I mean, it, you see it played out in in our world today. I mean, we're yeah. We t- we do not live on principle-based things. Come what may, we'll take the consequences. We do things based on pragmatism. Well, I have to vote for this guy because this. I get in such a fight with my sister. Bless her heart. She's like, how? I admittedly am not a Trump fan. I'm also not a fan of the other guy. I think they're both dumb. <laughs> um, it, and my sister's like, this election is too. I love my sister. First of all, don't get me wrong. I love my sister, and I totally see where she's coming from. I see where I see. I understand it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get on the phone. No, because I want to make this point. This is a good one. I'm like. If the choice was between Goebbels and Himmler, why would I pick either one? <laughs> well, I don't believe in voting for the lesser of two evils. Now, I know that she believes what she believes, and I totally admire that. I totally support her for that. Um, but, but that, I totally get what you're saying here. That, you know, and maybe this is a different thing. When you're not living by absolute truth, and, yeah, and again, I'm not it. talking about her, I'm talking about Saul here. <laughs> then, yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong here. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. That's coming out. <laughs> You're not living by absolute truth. Then everything is relative, and then there is no truth. You know, I get into this thing, and this is another tangent. Universalism. There are people that believe the Bible is out of date. There is no hell. God will save everyone, even after you die. 
None of that is biblical, folks. That is heresy. Any religious belief you have is okay if you're a believer of Jesus. That is false. That is false. And yet, that is exactly what we're coming back to here. I can believe whatever I want. It's all relative. Every situation can be decided based on specific circumstances of the period, and there's no fallback. Folks, there is absolute truth. It's right here. It is your foundation. You build your house on the sand and what happens? I heard it said, I don't even know if this applies, but somebody says there is no absolute truth. Do you believe that? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I love it. What a what a that's it. What a circle. I like it. <sighs> okay. Back. <laughs> what else do you guys see here? And and, and again, um, <clears throat> what do you notice about how his troops respond? How many troops did Saul have at the very beginning of that chapter? Do you remember? Three thousand. Had three thousand men. How many did he have at the end? What does that tell you about Saul's ability to capture the hearts and minds of his people? Still need Samuel. Yeah. Hey, Samuel, can I have some help here? <laughs> well, wow. like the chapter before, yeah. Samuel said, like, have I done anything wrong? Like, he's basically proving himself trustworthy, right? He's like, if I've done anything wrong, tell me and I'll replace it, whatever. And like, that was just the previous chapter. And then now Saul doesn't even trust that. Samuel said he was showing up in seven days and he doesn't trust that Samuel will like live up to what he said. You know? So that's a good point. I just wanted to quickly say that it's not entirely clear why Saul got rebuked here. And you may, it may have jumped right out to you what you thought the answer is. I can tell you that most scholars that are not exactly sure. Yes, it could have been the waiting period. It could have been the fact that uh, Saul was supposed to consult God before he did this. That's, that's almost certainly true. It could be that there was some unsaid thing that's not mentioned here. The point is, he did something he wasn't supposed to. He acted without um, following a certain command or, or, or guideline that he was expected to do. And, and Samuel, remember back to Samuel. Was Samuel all gung-ho about this king thing anyway? Samuel was like, dude, I hate this whole idea of having a king. Who's, who is the king for Samuel? God. God. He's like, he didn't want this in the first place. So you can tell that, that Saul is on thin ice here anyway. Right? There's not going to be a lot of wiggle room. You acted foolishly, Samuel. Like, and I can see Saul's face here too, maybe. C- having some compassion with the guy that he's been thrown into. And remember... If you remember back two or three chapters, you can see Saul was literally plucked out of obscurity. He was, he was plowing his field when someone came to him and basically said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And he's like, huh? <laughs> and now this guy is struggling to understand his, his purpose and what he's supposed to do. And I get it. And, you know, I think it's funny because I, I've read 1 Samuel many times, and it's easy for you to get really upset at Saul and be like, you're an idiot. Why are you so stupid? It's obvious you're not very good. You're no David. Right, but you got to have some compassion for the guy. I mean, he—I think he's literally trying to do the right thing, but he's not. <laughs> you know, he, with the best of intentions, may, maybe not not really coming through on that. And you can just see Samuel comes to him and says, "You've acted foolishly." I can just see the blood draining from Saul's face, like, "Oh, blank." <laughs> I've, 
I've screwed up here. I've screwed up, and this guy is getting it right in my face. And he doesn't just say, you've acted dumb today, like Saul, or I'm sorry, Samuel lets him have it. He lets him have it. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. Holy crap. That is harsh. If you go to uh, chapter 10, yeah. verse 8, it says, Then I will go down, then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt yeah. offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Yep. Seven days you shall wait until mm-hmm. I come to you and show you what you shall yep. do. So you didn't wait. Yep. Essentially, that's all he did. Yeah, that's... I mean, it's well, the same way when, yeah. when, when God told uh, Moses, speak to the rock. Yep. You know, and you got angry, you hit the rock, and I know, Roger, but that was, that was, to be fair, that was a different battle they were talking about. And so, yeah. And so I just, yes, it could be that we were supposed to apply that here too. It's not entirely clear. The truth is, though, he didn't do something right. And God and Samuel are very upset about it. Isn't that Thank you. You know? Thank you. I know it's my fault. Yeah. I know I've done something. And at the same time, then I try to translate that into... God's disappointed in me and my kingdom's not going to reign forever now. Well, think how Moses felt. I mean, the same thing, right? Probably Moses, he's like, I've been out, he didn't smoke, I'm just doing this. (laughs) I've been out here in the desert for 40 years with these people, listening to them. My own wife and my brother tried to mutiny on me. Here I am, eating manna and quail every day, and oy vey, does it suck, Right? And now God is telling me I don't get to go into the promised land because of something I did years ago by striking the rock instead of touching it. <laughs> and, and I can see the same thing there. Like, really? As a human being, how, how else would you feel, right? He's the first, too. He doesn't have anybody to look back on as an this example. Is great. This is great, Jess. I love just, this. It sucks to be the first at anything, really. <laughs> No. That's spoken like a true mm. oldest child. I love it. Had to set the example. Now, bless all of you for have, having had 3,000 years of examples for you to fall back on. Blessed are you for that. And I totally, I agree 100% with what Jessica is saying here. He probably looked at this like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And probably to a certain degree, is trying to follow what Samuel was doing. But again, and as we'll see in chapter 14, he goes down the wrong path again. He goes down the path of ritual. If I just follow ritual, and I follow object and treat objects as magical, and he'll do it with the ark again, and oy vey, you go off and, and you lose track. But you all have had... 3,000 years of history to help to guide you, and I would hope that it is guiding and, you. And we've had Jesus that showed yes. really who God is. This yeah. God back then was <coughs> seemed, and I'm going to emphasize, seemed yeah. to be different. Mm-hmm. And they were, from the chapter we're in on Wednesday nights is called The Tyranny of the Favor Line. And basically it talks about the, the path that I walk and Am I on God's good side or am I on his bad side? And this is very evident. Even as Samuel comes to him, he's like, you have really not pleased God Mm -hmm. in what you've done. 
and you're going down mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. He didn't have, he, they didn't have Jesus to go. Oh, yeah, he's still on my side no matter what. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with that, many, so with that many years of examples and with all of the, with everything here, how much heavier of a load is it that you better get this right? Right? Stop. I mean, you probably ought not be playing around <clears throat> with some of the religion stuff that we play around with. And I get it. I, I don't want to, that's, I'm not talking about making light of grace and that, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, right? exactly. But I, because I, I do understand that, but there's a, there's a heavy responsibility, I think, for people to, to kind of get serious about this mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think if Saul would have reached out to Samuel more for guidance than <coughs> And obviously here he was supposed to wait for him. Didn't. Yeah, his God is who he's supposed to mm -hmm. seek out to, but the person closest, I think, to God here was mm -hmm. Samuel. I think that like in fourteen he says that, you know, he's not a man after God's own like <coughs> he's gonna seek after a man mm -hmm. who's after his own heart, you know? And I think that Saul isn't like he isn't yeah. praying to God like David mm -hmm. like if you contrast it with David mm -hmm. yep. David we have basically all the Psalms are David yeah. crying out to God yeah. for praise for help for whatever and Saul <coughs> doesn't seem to have any relationship with God that he feels like he can cry out to him or go see Samuel yeah. or yeah. you know so I think so, what you and Tim are saying are exactly right number one seek God's counsel this is the application for your life Seek God's counsel. Ask God what he wants you to do. And secondly, seek Christian counsel. And what I mean by that is counsel. You have elders in your church here today. You have a pastor. You have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have spent years studying the Bible. Seek their counsel too. Don't just be unilateral about things. Don't just think your way is the right way. These are the two things that can help. You were never meant to walk this alone, folks. You weren't. Proverbs says that why, through wise counsel, wars are waged. So, seeking advice of others, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. well, what about waiting for God to answer? This is so good. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> then wait. And, and not just wait. What, what happens when you get the answer? Listen and do it. Accept the answer. <laughs> Look, this is great. And I, I personally think whatever you want to say about the, the motivation here in chapter 13, I think God was simply doing what God does really good. He told you what to do. And you're gonna wait. He's going to see what you do. Patience is his way of testing you folks. I know you hate that. I know you hate it. My job is over. I'm on unemployment. My kids are sick. The, the roof is leaking. My wife and I are not getting along. Our, our, our house is burning down. I don't know. Name, name your, your current crisis and think about your human reaction to what you're doing. If you even did seek God's counsel, which sometimes, most times we don't, let's be honest with ourselves. 
It's the last, not the, and see, I put it number one, and I think it should be, number one. And if it's not number one, what happens, even if you did go to God and say, God, what should I do about my, my unemployment? What should I do about my sick child? What if God's response is to just wait a day to answer you? How frustrating is that for you? What's the first thing you're going to do if you don't get a response? Act. 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 And then what happens? It's wrong. We're solved. <laughs> just read 6,000 pages, right? I mean, it's important. I, you have yeah. to, um, in prayer, yes. take steps. Correct. You, can't, you know, like, you can't just, well, I prayed about it and I, you know, for a job, and now I'm going to sit here and wait for mm -hmm. someone to call me. I mean, we are supposed to take steps of faith. So, I don't know. You know, this is a balance. It's tough. It's tough, you know, Angela, and I get it. Out, oh. You know, what should I do? Um, you just, yeah, have to be careful that what, what you do do is, um, I don't know. I think I this like is a thing that we all struggle with, and yeah. I totally get it. And, I, and I've made this comment a couple of times over the past few weeks doing Samuel is, what is the right balance between faith and action, <laughs> right? Because look, God gave you a brain for a reason. He gave you two hands for a reason. He does want you to act. Um, <clears throat> the hard part for us, and I'll even admit that I haven't figured it all out yet, is that line between trusting God and acting. Yeah. And, and, and I think that is a, that's a critical one. And what I found myself, I'm gonna give my roof, my, okay, my roof is an example here I will give because during the storm that we had in August, some of my shingles got ripped off my house. I spent the last two months struggling with my insurance company over a very minor claim. I've spent two months with a number of contractors who either don't call me back or give me bogus information or what have you. And it's been, it's been literally, it's been annoying. It hasn't been awful, it's just been annoying. I have found myself literally at my computer thinking to myself, Okay, I've done my part. I've at, I have prayed a lot about this. I have called people and I've asked them for their input and I found myself struggling saying, do I just write another email and blast this person and, and write to their boss or do I just wait for God's response? How can I, in my actions, show God I trust him? That's what I'm asking myself. By the way, God has been helping you. It hasn't rained since that storm, so. Well, and <laughs> see, that's just, you know. Clearly, there's been no more derechos, right? Yeah. How can I honor God with my faith in this matter? That is the statement I keep asking myself in my head. And, and honestly, Angela, I think that's a good guiding principle for all of us. How can I show God I trust him. Now, with my wife, uh, I told her that at one point, I was ready to get this guy's boss on the line and tell him all about this and say, I want a different guy and I need, I need some action here. But I waited. I, I actually thought this in my head. How can I honor God? I'm gonna trust God here because God's got this worked out. I really believe he's got this worked out and it's gonna work. Literally, within hours, the guy wrote me, he actually called me. He actually called me. Now, that, now look. Is that going to happen in every case? Maybe not. But I think it illustrates the fact that if you just take a deep breath, <laughs> take a deep breath, say, God, I, I put this in your hands. Literally, I'm, I'm one of those people that believes you only have to pray once about something. Now, now, I might get a lot of pushback about this. 
I truly believe if you really believe God is who he says he is and he will help you, you literally only have to ask him for something once. I believe that. That doesn't mean he doesn't want you to pray to him. But if you truly believe. And so I said to myself, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to trust you. I have a feeling that this is going to work out and I'm not going to push the blast button. Now, in that case, it worked out. It continues to work out. Don't we always look for it to work out? How we still yes. want it to work out, though? How and when? Yes. Exactly. Well, it's it's the answer. I think it should. Usually just. there's a different verse in the Bible to get what we want instead of the verse that <laughs> yeah. he's trying to share with us. Yeah. <clears throat> and just for the record, yeah. Daniel spent time praying, hmm? and finally the angel did show up 30 hmm. days later. He's like, why did you take so long? He said, look, the moment you started praying, I came to you. Mm. The devil met me mm-hmm. and has been contending with me for these last I love you, James. Days. I love you. This is so true. I've been coming. I've been fighting. Yeah. We've been fighting for you. Yeah. That just gave me chills. So just the times mm. you think that God's not, that he's making you wait, it, it, that's not necessarily the case. He's putting the things behind it. Look, I'm a manager. I don't, I don't know how many of you manage people. I've had countless times when someone has come to me with an issue that they need resolved. Being the person I am, I immediately set about to try and resolve it. Now, I've had many instances of employees coming back to me saying, don't you remember, I asked you to do this thing, and I just want to know when it's going to get resolved. And my answer is almost always, I've been working on it. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Trust me. But things are more complicated. And, and, you know, God is dealing with human beings, too. He needs to get those pieces into place so that they all work. I totally believe that. Just because you can't push the easy button and immediately a solution presents itself, the one that you thought was the solution, doesn't mean God isn't working for you. All things work for the good of those who believe and trust in him. That's scriptural. Somewhere in the Bible it says, lean not on your own understanding and trust God. And goodness, wouldn't it have been great for Saul to know all that? And he did. He, he kind of did and he kind of didn't. Now, let's, let's move on because I want to make sure we get to the next part. And it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a long chapter here. I would like to read it because it, it is a good bookend to this, this issue. Chapter 14, we're going to read the whole thing. 1 through 52. Who would like to read that for me? I'm done. I'm done. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, and it's no wonder that, Never these, be sorry. that these people were scared and leaving in droves. They didn't have any weapons. Let's talk about that real quick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How brilliant was it for the Philistines to do oh, this? Oh, sure. What, what happened? By, Tell me what happened. By the way, that's the principle of the Second Amendment right there. So. <laughs> that's a side issue. That's a side issue, but yes. James Madison, it absolutely is. <laughs> Actually, it, it's, it's not necessarily about arms, but it is about, I'm, let's talk about that for just a moment. The Philistines, being the dominant force in the Levant, were able to, through negotiation and force, force the Israelites to depend solely on them for all of their blacksmith needs. It is proven through history that the Philistines had the superior knowledge of ironworking. They brought ironworking to the Levant earlier than almost any other culture and thus inaugurated what we call the Iron Age. The Philistines were so smart. They, through battle, took the weapons of the Israelites every time they fought them and through negotiation and undercutting prices made irresistible 
for the, the Israelites to use them to get their tools purchased and sharpened. They charged, the fact that the author is showing how much they charge shows you it's a matter of economics. It, almost certainly the Philistines are making it so cheap for the Israelites to come to the Philistines to be able to purchase and modify their weapons and their tools, they could go nowhere else. And in so doing, weakened the Israelites so that they were almost completely defenseless when the battle came. I'm not going to get into the politics of today of how this works in the United States. You can just imagine how this works on any state that when you give up your ability to maintain the strength of your nation and you hand it over to another country, what's going to happen when the you-know-what hits the fan? Now, in this case, it was godly. God was showing them, and, and again, the reason that it happens here is because when the battle and the victory finally come, there will be no doubt who won that victory for the Israelites. Who won that victory for the Israelites? And that was the point that they were trying to make here. So thank you for bringing that up. Okay. You've only delayed the inevitable, James. Now we need to read 15. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, 14, one to the end. Who would like to do that for me? Yeah, I can do this. Thank you, ma'am. Okay. One day... Officer who carried his armor. Come, let's go over to the Philistine camp on the other side. But Jonathan did not tell his father. So Saul was sitting under a pomegranate tree at the threshing floor near Gibeah. He had about 600 men with him. One man was Ahijah, who was wearing the holy vest. Ahijah was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab. <laughs> Ichabod was the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one knew that Jonathan had left. There was a steep slope on each side of the pass that Jonathan planned to go through to reach the Philistine camp. The cliff on one side was named Bozes, and the cliff on the other side was named Sinna. One cliff faced north towards Michmash, the other faced south towards Gibeah. Jonathan said to his officer who carried his armor, Come, let's go to the camp of those men who are not circumcised. Maybe the Lord will help us. The Lord can give us victory if we have many people or few. The officer who carried Jonathan's armor said to him, do whatever you think is best. I'll go ahead. Um, go ahead. I'm with you. So Jonathan said, Then come, we will cross over to the Philistines and let them see us. If they say to us, Stay there until we come to you, we will stay where we are. We won't go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up and the Lord will let us defeat them. This will be the sign for us. When both Jonathan and his officer let the Philistines see them, the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes they were hiding in. The Philistines in the camp shouted to Jonathan and his officer, Come up to us. We'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan said to his officer, Climb up behind me, because the Lord has given the Philistines to Israel. So Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and his feet, and his officer climbed just behind him. Jonathan struck down the Philistines as he went, and his officer killed them as he followed behind him. In that first fight, Jonathan and his officer killed about 20 Philistines over a half acre of ground. All the Philistine soldiers panicked, those in the camp and those in the raiding party, and the ground itself shook. God had caused the panic. Saul's guards were at Gibeah in the land of Benjamin when they saw the Philistine soldiers running in every direction. Saul said to his army, Check to see who has left our camp. When they checked, they learned that Jonathan and his officer were gone. So Saul said to Ahijah the priest, Bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. So while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion of the Philistines' camp was growing. 
Then Saul said to Ahijah, Put your hand down. Then Saul gathered his army and entered the battle. They found the Philistines confused, striking each other with their swords. Earlier, there were Hebrews who had served the Philistines and stayed in their camp, but now they joined the Israelites with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites hidden in the mountains of Ephraim heard what the Philistine soldiers were running away, they also joined the battle and chased the Philistines. So the Lord saved the Israelites that day, and the battle moved on past beth Evan. The men of Israel were miserable that day because Saul had made an oath for all of them. He had said, No one should eat food before evening and before I finish defeating my enemies. If he does, he will be cursed. So no Israelite soldier ate food. Now the army went into the woods where there was some honey on the ground. They came upon some honey, but no one took any because they were afraid of the oath. Jonathan had not heard the oath that Saul had put on the army, so he dipped the end of his stick into the honey and lifted some out and ate it. Then he felt better. Then one of the soldiers told Jonathan, Your father made an oath for all the soldiers. He said, Any man who eats today will be cursed. That is why they are so weak. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the land. See how much better I feel after just tasting a little bit of this honey? It would have been much better for the men to eat food that they took from their enemies today. We, should have, we could have killed many more Philistines. Uh, that day the Israelites defeated the Philistines from Michmash to Ejelon. After that, they were very tired. They had taken sheep, cattle, and calves from the Philistines. Now they were so hungry that they killed the animals on the ground and ate them without draining the blood from them. Someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord. They are eating meat without draining the blood from it. Saul said, You have sinned. Roll a large stone over here now. Then he said, Go to the men and tell them that each person must bring his ox and sheep to me and kill it here and eat it. Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat without draining the blood from it. That night everyone brought his animal and killed him there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Saul said, Let's go after the Philistines tonight and rob them. We won't let any of them live. Then they answered, Do whatever you think is best. But the priest said, Let's ask God. So Saul said, Ask God, Should I chase the Philistines? Will you let us defeat them? But God did not answer Saul at that time. Then Saul said to all the leaders of his army, Come here, let's find out what sin has been done today. As surely as the Lord lives who has saved Israel, even if my son Jonathan did the sin, he must die. But no one in the army spoke. Then Saul said to the Israelites, You stand on this side, and I and my son Jonathan will stand on the other side. And the men answered, Do whatever you think is best. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give me the right answer. And Saul and Jonathan were picked. The other men went free. Saul said, Now let us discover if it is I or Jonathan, my son, who is guilty. And it was Jonathan that was picked. Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told Saul, I only tasted a little honey from the end of my stick, and I must die now? Saul said, Jonathan, if you don't die, may God punish me terribly. But the soldier said to Saul, Must Jonathan die? Never. He is responsible for saving Israel today. As surely as the Lord lives, not even a hair of his head will fall to the ground. Today Jonathan fought against the Philistines with God's help. So the army saved Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul stopped chasing the Philistines, and they went back to their own land. When Saul became king over Israel, he fought against Israel's enemies all around. He fought Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the king of Zobah, and the Philistines. Everywhere Saul went, he defeated Israel's enemies. He fought bravely and defeated the Amalekites. He saved the Israelites from their enemies who had robbed them. Saul's <coughs> sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. His older daughter was Merib, and his younger daughter was named Michael. Saul's wife was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimenez. The commander of his army was Abner, son of Nair, Saul's uncle. Saul's father Kish and Abner's father Nair were sons of Abiel. 
All of Saul's life, he fought hard against the Philistines, and when he saw stronger, brave men, he took them into his army. Thank you very much. Very good. I am going to put this out before we discuss this, that there's at least one more really big characteristic of Saul and his leadership style, and that's that he was an autocrat. <coughs> autocrat <coughs> is a really nice way of saying tyrant. Now, this, as it so happens to be, is what happens when, and I've seen it, much of the time when a young person who does not have experience being a leader of men and women is thrust into a leadership position, the first thing that they take on is this air of autocracy, this, this kind of tyrant, it's my way or the highway attitude, because they're inexperienced and they haven't learned the subtlety of leadership and management. The very first thing they start to do is, it's my way or the highway, do it my way, they stop listening to their people and they start just barking orders and they expect everyone to do it. Now, I think we've all seen that in our lives. We seem to have a, a, a pretty uh, <clears throat> experienced group here today and I think you can see in this position, Saul is, is kind of, he, he's, he's doing what, what people do when they don't have good training and they don't have experience. <clears throat> well, I'm the ruler. In order to make this work, I'm gonna tell everyone what to do and, and in Saul's case, what that becomes is, I want you to do what I tell you, not what God is telling all of us. And he, and he seems to forget the, the structure here. Remember I said, <clears throat> the natural structure of leadership amongst humans is there's a leader on top, and then there's managers, and then there's followers or everyone else. <clears throat> what does this pyramid omit? Uh, yeah. yeah, God is missing from this. <clears throat> and, and thus, you have so many problems in the world today. Remember I said, the order that is laid out by Samuel is, you have the king, you have the, uh, <clears throat> the priests, and I, and I would kind of put prophets in there too, although most people probably wouldn't do that. <clears throat> and then I would say everyone else. And sometimes the prophets come in here. <clears throat> But the, the answer is they all work together as kind of a balance of power, serving God. God is in the equation. He is the direct line of communication here. I think what you're seeing here is Saul in his natural human state falling into this. <clears throat> what is the result of his autocracy? Well, for one, when God told him to go into this town and kill all the people, including the king, yeah. <clears throat> it's what he meant. And Saul kept some of the sheep for that was good for sacrifice. Yep. He didn't kill the king. Samuel heard the the, the sheep, and he said, yep. "You know, he, he said you didn't do what God said." And Saul said, "Yeah, I did do what he said." No, you didn't. Right. He said, "I hear a sheep." So, so part of it is and that Samuel, they stop following God's rules. That's yeah. one. It's kind of like he. This is what you're going to do, so they do that, and then that doesn't work out. So then he's like, "This is what no, this yes. is what we're going to do." And then, oh, it's so like, I mean, relative. I would call this yeah. chapter pulling your hair out because it's just yeah. one after another, after another, after another that doesn't work. And then all of a sudden, it's like well, I don't really even know what we're it, doing here. I love this, Ken, and I, I would <clears> call this maybe the snowball of, of bad consequences, right, or bad decisions. I made one bad decision I wasn't supposed to make. It's caused problems. You know, it's like kind of like a lie. And this is why I can't lie, because I can't remember what I've told people. Uh, you make one lie, 
it goes bad for you. So then you have to make a bunch of other lies to fix that lie, and then those all go bad. So you have to keep, you know, and it's it's just a downward spiral. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. Um, and finally, somebody in the back said, raises their hand and said, let's ask God. <laughs> and it's like, what? What is that now? Right? And, and thank, thank God, thank Yahweh, that someone was there to say that, right? <clears throat> so contrast that with Jonathan's leadership style. What characteristics does Jonathan have? And I filled this whole space here. That's why I think it's very interesting that <coughs> God just went a whole nother way. Like he didn't let Jonathan become king, even though it seems like Jonathan would be yep. way more like David. Let's talk know? about that. Let's pause that because <laughs> right. that's really important. But for today, what is, what is Jonathan's leadership style? What do you notice? Or his character? He seemed like he was decisive, yet still humble enough to say... You know, let's do this, but make sure we're listening or seeing if God yep. blesses well, we'll Seeking God's counsel. Seeking God's counsel. He's in it for God, not yeah. himself. And like the good of Israel, you know, like yeah. God. Thank you, thank you. Who is who is Saul? When when you when you kind of <clears throat> downshift into tyranny, who is it? Who are you in it for? You're in it for yourself. But you're in it for pride. Remember, a few chapters ago, the people were, well, oh gosh, no, this is coming with David and Goliath, sorry. In a few chapters from now, the people will start to chant, Saul has killed his thousands, and David, how does that cut you to your soul? How does that cut you to your soul? Now you're in it for pride. You're going, I'm going to prove to them I can kill my hundreds of thousands, right? You, it, becomes, it becomes all about you. But he was the first. I don't know. I still. I get I it, sweetheart. I, I totally I get it. Problem with David. Totally get it. But. Probably find out later. And you know what? I love that, Jessica. And I will say this. <laughs> it's like Caiaphas, one of the most wicked men who ever who ever lived on this earth. But he was the high priest. Saul was the king, and he was anointed. And don't get me wrong. Saul ruled for forty years, forty-two years, probably. So it's Saul totally agree with you. Saul a lot of groundwork for David. Saul yes. had a lot of successes, even though yes. he was foolish in a lot of yep. areas. But and David wasn't great. Think yeah. about it. Jonathan, who was his example? Yeah. Saul. And he yes. didn't really... Okay, I, he yes. picked probably some good things that Saul had, yeah. mm -hmm. but he said, no, I'll still seek God on mm -hmm. things that I think that's fair. We're looking at what they're doing, right? Yeah. I mean... God is the one testing the heart. Yeah. And I think that's where we're going to, I mean, that's, that's the thing is that we look at the outward actions, and right. yes, that's the harvest of what is sown, right? I get that. But that'll be the difference mm -hmm. of somebody who is called a man after God's heart, even though some of his actions are going to be terrible. Who is David's um, example, and who is Jonathan's example? God's, Just tell me. Yes, God. exactly. Well, and Jonathan also kind of, I don't know, I feel like he kind of collaborated with his. Yes! This is really good. Folks, <laughs> it's not a sin to collaborate. It's not a sin. You know, today the, the word compromise gets a really bad rap. And maybe it's not compromise, but... Look, Jonathan was a leader of men. Did his, 
Saul's, most of Saul's men deserted him. What happened with Jonathan after this happened? What did all the, the men, Israelites do? They all stood up for him and said, you can't kill Jonathan. They <laughs> rallied. He <clears throat> rallies his people. He has a natural leadership ability. And his people follow him and they love him. This kind of, well, that, that kind of reminded me of, you know, the judge who says he, he vows to kill the yeah. first, sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house. Yeah, Jeff. And I feel like it's kind of the same thing as this. Like yep. Saul vows, okay, we're going to kill whoever is causing God not to answer us. And then... Why did God have the Umim and Thurmim point out Jonathan here? Because I do believe it was divine that the lots when they cast pointed to Jonathan for a reason and outed him. Why did God do that? I think it's to show Saul to not be so rash. This and is quick so to bad. Make yes, um, because rash. I should eat food anyway. Yes, like, he just rashly thought of that, and then yes. right, he's still going to kill him. I think it, changed, it kind of changed the relationship a little bit after that time. I want to. You're sure you're going to die. I'm going to kill you. The the difference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <Yeah. laughs> is Thanksgiving still on? I don't know. Should I not come? <laughs> the difference that we see is. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. So, so Saul is collecting men to go up and, and kill people, and that's that's his way to do it, right? Yeah. Jonathan's answer is nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or a few. <clears throat> And that, I mean, when you start saying, I love that. When you start saying stuff like that, hey, that'll endear you to a lot of people. Because, yes. hey, thanks, man. I appreciate you taking one for me, right? And, and I want to use the B word here. He was so brave. He was so, dude, he went with his buddy, an armor bearer. I don't know much about armor bearers in the first millennium, I have a feeling they are not the elite fighting force like special forces people. I think they're the people that carry all the crap, okay? Him and this guy go into this camp with at least 20 people because that's how many people they ended up killing. <clears throat> that dude had guts. That also endears you to your people. I'm sorry, but where was Saul during much of the battles of First Samuel? Under a pomegranate tree. <laughs> This dude is in the trenches. As he was climbing up, yeah. they were he to a, a fortified position. <laughs> uh, help us out here. Uh, you know, this is yeah. not a good tactical position <laughs> for him. So, no. uh, they had the high ground. Yeah. But he relied on God. Yes, relied on God. Now, to, to say, let's put a bow on this for today. What is the action item for us? Who do you want to be? <laughs> That's not a hard choice. <laughs> Who do you want to be? <laughs> Roger Howard. <laughs> you know? That's it. That's it. Which one is the easier one to do? Uh, I'm not going to lie. Because I said so. Because I said so. Ugh. That's so much easier. This is the hard one. Let's take this, let's take this home this week and think about this, how we can apply this. Because I'm, I'm not going to... You may not be the CEO of the company you work for. You may not be the owner of your own company. Um, <clears throat> you may not be the president of the Glee Club. You, each and every one of you, is a leader in the Christian community. Whether you want to accept that or not, you're all, this is all for all of us. Let's, let's think about that as we go forth this week. Thank you. Leaders of our families, our kids. Excellent. All right, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.